you join us in episode three of Rise, where Craig Gould recounts his challenging second bone marrow transplant and its life-threatening complications. This episode delves into Craig's resilience as he faces unexpected medical hurdles and the mental toll of his ordeal, revealing his strength and the crucial support of his family. Listen as Craig's journey reflects not only a fight against illness, but also the enduring spirit of hope and humour in adversity. So you got through your second bone marrow transport, you've you run the two and a half years or so. The plan is to do another round of chemo and then have another bone marrow transfusion. And didn't go so well the second time? No, not at all. I, that was another time I was nearly dead. They thought I was going to die. What happened? So with this one, we were a bit, we were all geared up for it. So I'm at work the one day on the Friday that you called me and said, we've got a bed available, we're going to go in on Monday. So can you come in Sunday night to get prepped and we're going to hit the ground running on Monday? Then I got a call Sunday saying something's happened, the bed's not ready, we'll do it Tuesday. It's fine. <clears throat> but the, the hospital staff was stressed. I don't believe they did the test on me properly because I think I was, must have been carrying some kind of infection when I went in. But that wasn't checked. It was done straight in with a map. And there you go, mate, you're dead. Oh, shit, you've got an infection. I've got no defences. I'm out. I'm nauseous. I can't do anything. They're getting me through days. I've got a morphine pumping me just to try and keep the pain away because I'm in such a mess. I'm an isolated room. They've moved me. For some reason, they had to move me to a room that wasn't on the haematology ward. It was somewhere else. Look, the people there aren't trained the same to deal with it. And the contamination control wasn't as good as it would be in the haematologist. So I'm in a quite a bad way now. And I remember one point, I, I, I went to go to the toilet in the, this in the evening when the night shift were on. Passed out. Whacked my head on the sink and slept on the floor in the hospital. Now, no one checked on me because I'm in an isolated room. And eventually, I think about six in the morning, I managed to crawl back into the bed and went back to sleep. Slept the night on the floor. And that's from the dark times. That's when you're thinking I'm going to die. That's a proper dark time. And you don't want to sleep because you don't think you're going to wake up again. So taking nothing away from the very caring people who work within healthcare in the NHS, you've had relatively positive experience with the people. Hospitals can be quite traumatic places. You, you speak with almost a bit of PTSD from some of your hospital experiences. Uh, first of all, I'd agree with you. NHS and the hospital staff in general are absolutely amazing. They kept me alive so long. would not have a bad word said against them. But there's things happen. It's just an experience. People are untrained and need people. So that's just a little example. Or you get some nurses that <clears throat> a lot of them are trainees. They know when they do this. They go through the vein into the bone. And you jump it. They've got to practice and do it somewhere. So I'm fairly comfortable with letting, letting them do it. Obviously not comfortable when they hit a bone. <laughs> it hurts. But I have particularly of late because I've gone in for small things and ended up there much longer than I anticipated. And I know the doctors, once you're in with it, the doctors don't let you go till you're perfect, because that's their job. I also know that you never get out at a weekend. So if you're not out by Friday, you're in. You're not going to get out till Monday at the earliest. And even then, it'll be Monday evening, because the doctor's rounds don't come round, and then 
to Tuesdays more unlikely. So I know that a three-day stay could end up being two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, and I would agree with you, I've definitely got a hospital PTSD. I am terrified of going back in. I do anything not to get back in. At one point, you had a problem with your spine and you had to wear a, a back brace, is that right? Yeah. I gather this could be quite a challenge. It's one of them scenarios where I was distraught having to do it, but it was just too funny. As it starts off, I go up to a, another hospital, same hospital up in um, Haraway, and they make a cast, a plaster cast of your body shape. So you're literally like a mummy. They've wrapped all the wet bandages around you, and you're there in just your boxer shorts and nothing else. And Christian just wetting herself because I've got my arms horizontal out. So they've got this plaster cast of my body hardening up on me, and I'm just stood there going, what the? <laughs> she did take pictures, which I was not happy about, but I couldn't do anything about it because I'm trapped. So that's how they get the shape of your body cast. So then they come out, they come back, and a week later, you have to go for a fitting of this body cast, but it's hard plastic. So this rock-hard piece of plastic now comes on that they strap onto you, and you put it under your clothes, and then you've got to get through life wearing this thing. And in the UK, it's probably fine. People know you knew it, or if people bumped into you, they give you funny looks. These are of nails. Have you still got it? <laughs> yeah, I've still got it. It's upstairs. So you've got all that, you've got to take it off at night, put it back on. Summer was hideous, made you extremely hot. But the, the worst time was I had a meeting in the States again. Now, can you imagine going through American security wearing a body cast? Every single time, the alarms are off, the guns are at me, they think, they're thinking the worst, like it's a bomb or something. And come with me, sir, at gunpoint, full strip search. I told you this before I went from the machine. So we saw on the machine we have to act. And yeah, that wasn't fun. You mentioned walking around London with a backpack at times, feeling like a terrorist. Oh, God, yeah, that was bad. One. That was, it was a neat treatment. Uh, everything about the timing of this couldn't have been more aligned. So this treatment entailed me having a backpack, uh, which was connected into a what, the thing they put in your arm, they went on to fix. And you're wearing it 24-7. So I can't be far away from the hospital, so I'm down at Warren Street, Beach Street area. And I was supposed to have it for five days over a certain weekend. That weekend just happened to be some royal event that was huge, global scale. So you've got security all over. <laughs> there's, there's dignitaries from all over the world there, around, and you've seen the cars, you've seen security men like the men in black dressed everywhere and i'm walking around with a bloody backpack on it doesn't look good i don't look great and i'm cold and i'm wrapped up and the looks i'm getting are just terrific went for a meal once and people going you know look look it's treatment because literally one point there was a, a celebrity came into this restaurant and they had security with them and they're checking me out chemo bone marrow transfusions chemo reaches a stage where you can't have any chemo because the last one sort of nearly killed you. Did you feel that you were running out of options of chemo with each cycle? Yes. As I'm getting more along in the teeth of this, I'm knowing the doctors pretty well, so we're getting quite honest conversations. Um, I, I can read my blood charts now. I know what I'm looking for, what I need to be getting. 
And all the time we're chatting and we're going, okay, this one's going to go. 18 months, two years, we know this one's going to go. What's coming up? And they've always given me confidence that there's something else around the board, something that we can do. It's only around about now. 12 years later, we're at the stage where we're thinking maybe there's not something around the corner. But I still believe there's something around the corner, even today. So you've told your sons about what's going on. What was the turning point? Because you've chosen not to tell your kids for years. How did you finally approach the topic with them? It was a relapse I had two or three years ago. And this was another one when they said to me, you're in trouble here, we've got nothing for you. So I think the kids were old, well, obviously they were older. We felt they were old enough to deal with us and we had to tell them. And how did that conversation go? Yeah, it wasn't good. I'm dying. I said, I'm sure you've got an idea of something's not going good with me anyway, but so let's have that on the table. I'll tell you exactly what it is. Told them what I'd got. Told them all the treatments I'd had. <clears throat> told them it's happening again and I'm going on a new set of treatments. <clears throat> and don't worry, I'm fine. I said, I've survived this long, I'll survive it again. Uh, we asked them if they had any questions. In the time, they said no. And that's not a surprise because that's a huge thing to take in as a young person. They went away. And then a few hours later, they came back down with questions about treatment, what it's going to do to me, am I going to say, do they need to do anything, can they do anything, what, what, what does it mean for them, what does it mean for mum? Some of the answers are horrible. And the truth is, I don't know if I'm going to be here in five years. I don't know if I'm going to watch you get married. I know I don't know if I'm going to watch you have children. But for me, I'm in bits. I'm nearly in tears now going, I'm never going to see my kids. I'm never going to walk, go and watch them get married. Maybe I will, but in theory, it's unlikely. <clears throat> They're the reality, but the reality points are what set. Because you can live in the bubble for, for years right? you know, without having to face any of these issues. Yeah. Was there a sense of relief when you told them? Yeah, I was pleased they knew. Um, I wasn't upset that I didn't tell them when I was told to. I felt we did it right, we timed it right. Uh, I don't believe a six-year-old needs to deal with cancer. They, they knew I wasn't well. Yeah. They didn't want to ask the questions. They still don't know. I, I'm very honest with them. told them what's happening. I told them very clearly, this is not their problem, it's mine. How's your relationship changed with them as a result? They're a bit more aware when I do get ill. My, if I get a cold or an infection or something, now they're more aware that I'm probably going to be worse than most people. And there's a chance if the temper just go up, I might end up in hospital. But no, they're, they're fine. They're, at, at this stage, they're much more considerate. And I suppose your wife, Christine, has got someone in the house who knows what's going on now. It's made it easier for her in a way. Yes. It does. In reality, it doesn't work that way. But <laughs> the funny one was a couple of years back when I had an internal bleed. I decided I couldn't get to work because I was a long drive. I didn't think I'd make it. So I had a wash and I just lay down in the bed and I'd vomited blood and was lying asleep with my own vomit. One of them stuck their head in and didn't see me properly and said, all right, Dad, you're all right, going to school now. <laughs> and I'm covered in blood. I woke myself up, cleaned myself down. Did no one notice? 
What would you say are the most challenging moments you've felt emotionally? It's the future. I know there's things that I'm not going to say, uh, in particular family things. I'm never going to hold my grandchild. You know, that, that's when it really gets you. You're like, hang on, that's serious. That's a big thing. Financially, I'm never going to reap the rewards of all my hard work in life. That's minor, but it's important because the financial side helps you achieve the memories with your kids that, that, you, that you want. You're not going to see your kids grow up. You're not going to see their families. You're not going to enjoy the good things in life anymore. Was there a specific turning point for you, either emotionally or mentally, throughout the 12 years that's made you change your perspective on things? I think the last time, this last bout was pretty hairy. Hence me now doing this. I didn't, as I was wasn't that keen on doing it until this time around. This time around, we don't think there's another way to go after this. We didn't think there was anywhere to go, to be fair, six months ago. There's a small part of you hanging out for a, a last minute, well, let's try this, though. Oh, yeah, I'm always up for it. Um, I mean, I, I, six months ago, I was given six weeks to live. Craig, in fairness, 12 years ago, you were given two weeks to live. Yeah, I've had a few scrapes of death. I think I've been nearly dead about four or five times. Obviously, you've had this during COVID. I had COVID too, yeah, that nearly killed me. But also you had to access healthcare and chemotherapy throughout the COVID pandemic as well. Yeah. Was that challenging? So with, with the COVID things, they, they were very good because obviously by this stage, the Royal Free Hematology team had moved down to Macmillan Centre in UCLA which is the best centre in the whole world, definitely the best in the UK. I, I did have a cold once to go down for treatment. You have to ring one and say, yeah, I think I've got a cold. And I said, okay, so they meet you outside. They have a nurse that comes down. They took me to a porter cabin at the side of the building, did a few tests. And they're like, leave it there a little bit. And they go, right, yeah, you can go to the side room for your treatment, away from all the main things. So they put you in a side room and they do the treatment and they get you out there as quick as possible. Now, some would say it's not a bad way of getting your treatment because you never get it so quick. You had COVID? Yes. Nearly died of COVID? Yes. I had COVID. Uh, I was at home for a bit. Then we eventually called a, an ambulance. They took me down to LCH because that's always my preference with previous histories. And I'm in isolation and it's stabilising. About three o'clock one morning, the nurse came in to me and said, there's a hospital, an ambulance going up to where you live. Do you want to jump in it and go? So obviously I didn't last enough for me twice. I was packed and ready in 30 seconds and in that ambulance. And I went, come back out. Clearly wasn't right still. So I stayed in bed for another few days. It was now getting progressively worse again. And Justin called the ambulance again. And this time they went to Barnet. Straight into the COVID wards. I'm trying to explain to them, look, I have this disease. I don't think I need to be sharing a room full of COVID. Thanks. Oh, you have to stay here till we get you a room. So they still put the room full of COVID. I was pretty sick for about two, three, four days. The breathing and the not getting enough oxygen and all that kind of stuff. And I was on oxygen and all that. And then I started feeling a bit better. <clears throat> I thought, now I'm going to be all right. I'm going to get out of this. And then 
Christine obviously couldn't come to see me. No one could come and see me. Uh, and she video calls me. And, I, and I'm out of breath. She goes, what the hell are you doing? I'm just doing some exercises. So I need to get my legs strong and my arms because I know the rules. Unless I can complete one flight of steps on my own, safe, I'm not getting out of this place. And she, that's when she knew I was going to be all right. So we're going to... But I think with COVID, that affected me most mentally than anything, more mentally than anything. Why was that? So when I come out of the hospital, I was so depressed. And I couldn't work it out. I couldn't explain it. I've never been so depressed as after COVID. I take it you were shielding? Yes. And you managed to get every perk you could have going by being on special supermarket lists and, and everything? No, I didn't because I felt guilty. So I, I took myself off them lists. I, I did exert some use out of it by putting myself on the priority de- delivery list for all the main supermarkets. Yeah, I wasn't frightened, but it was hideous for my family. Christine and the two boys, we, we never left this house for three months. Everything came to us. We never set foot out of this house for three months. So, and that's the kids. What on earth are the kids going to do, stuck in a house for three months? <clears throat> I, I got a basketball stuff. We had sporting competitions in the garden because it was summer, thankfully. So I smashed a few windows playing cricket, lost many balls over the hedges, football and basketball. Uh, You're trying to approach some degree of normality. Your heart had other ideas one Christmas, though, didn't it? Yeah, that was a turn up at the point. It was Christmas 21, I think. Now, I didn't think for a second I'd have anything wrong with my heart. So I'm getting checked monthly, week, every two weeks. And then the one weekend, I started getting a bit of a heavy chest. So on the Friday, I went to bed thinking, I think I'm having a heart attack. But it's unlikely because I'm so checked so thoroughly, I'm sure we'd have seen something happen. So Saturday night, it starts to get quite bad. I say to Christine, I think we need to call ambulance. I'm thinking I'm a heart attack. Because I would, obviously I haven't mentioned it to her because I don't need to worry about anything else. 